Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience and multi-actor systems, we want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural, and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy, and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic, and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast. We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Today, we will listen to our host, Roberto Rocco. Roberto Rocco is the initiator and host of this podcast, and also an associate professor of spatial planning and strategy at Balcomder. Roberto is trained as an architect and spatial planner, with a master's in planning by the University of Sao Paulo and a PhD by TU Delft. Roberto specializes on governance for the built environment and social sustainability, as well as issues of governance in regional planning and design. This episode addresses the concept of governance and how planners and designers can use the concept to plan better and more inclusive cities. Without further ado, let's listen to Roberto Rocco. So today I'm going to talk about just governance, and I'm sure you have heard this word, but I've seen, um, I've noticed that a lot of people don't know what governance is 
very well, and that's okay. I mean, uh, it's a little bit of a complicated um, um, uh, subject, but let's let's dive into it and let's try to to learn together what governance really is, right? So there are two ways of looking uh, uh, towards governance. You can look at it from um, a, a kind of um, idea. So it's a, a nice idea about how things should be governed, right? Uh, so it's a new style of governing that implies that uh, implies not um, uh, not government. So government is different from governance. We are talking about how things are governed by other actors rather than the government alone. So things like, for example, housing provision, water provision, road provision, they are governed not only by the government, they are governed by the market, they are governed by civil associations, and they are governed by all kinds of actors, right, that influence how these things are provided. But we can also look at at governance from um, the point of view of understanding what is really going on in the world and and seeing that um, the world is much more complex than this. This is super complex and it's a little bit boring, but this is an organigram for a local government in Nigeria, right? So what we can see here is a typical um, example of government. This is how a government organizes itself into little departments and units. And, you know, there is a chairman here and a vice chairman. <laughs> and you have all the, the little, you know, the little minions who follow the orders of, of the ones above. And I'm sure that this is the, the way um, that you are kind of, most people think, okay, this is how things work, right, in the world. And actually, uh, what I'm claiming here is that this is only part of the story. Um, uh, this is indeed how the, the government of this city works in Nigeria, but you have all a lot of other actors that are influencing how the city is governed and who are not part of the government, right? So the, it's important to understand that when I say governed, I'm not saying the government. I'm saying how things are managed or how they are steered. Another example of a, of a you know, typical government or organization is this um, uh, Department of Health of the Australian um, government. And here you can see, you know, there is a secretary and there is a health uh, production regulation. So there are like, a, you know, uh, sections and divisions. What is a little bit different here is that uh, all these things, they have names of people attached to them. And this is important because um, uh, all these departments and, uh, and you know, uh, places where people make decisions, they need to be accountable. And they will be more accountable if the government is transparent and if we can get all the information that we need to know who takes those decisions. But I'm talking about something different today. I'm talking about how things are steered, managed, or governed, or, or governed besides the government. So everything that happens around it. And the notion of governance involves uh, 
the relationships between civil society, the private sector, and the public sector. So uh, we have these three uh, uh, big groups in society, like big, big, um, big clouds of stakeholders, big clouds of actors that are influencing the decisions uh, in the city, right? And of course, it's easy for us to know the public sector. We say, well, it's the government, right? Uh, the private sector are businesses, but uh, I'd like to ask you guys, what do you think civil society is? What do you think it is? Who is part of civil society? Like the UN uh, NGOs or something? Uh, NGOs, for sure. Political parties, very good, Jihad. Citizens. Uh, citizens so, and communities. Uh, yes, citizens and communities. Uh, very good. So NGOs. So everybody who is not in the public sector and is not for profit is part of civil society. But I'm going to shock you a little bit because citizens alone, we as individuals, we are not civil society. We are part of civil society, but in individuals alone, citizens alone, they're not civil society. Uh, Inti is saying, well, social movements are civil society. Uh, the third sector so uh, I'm trying to read the chat while I speak to you. Civil society are citizens organized around an objective um, or a claim or um, a goal that they have in common. So a lot of things are uh, civil society. Jihad said unions, that's true. Professional unions are uh, civil society. Political parties are civil society. So that's a bit strange, right? Political parties, uh, they should be part of the government. Well, no, because if they're not in the government, if they're just a political party, they're civil society, right? Um, um, churches and uh, the mosques are, are a civil society. They are a group of people around a certain objective, right? Um, so any kind of association between people with an objective is civil society. Another, another interesting thing is that the public sector is not the government. When we say the government, we mean something very... Uh, it's very complex because the government has several uh, departments and has several levels. You have national government, you have provincial government or state government, and you have local government. And sometimes you have a, a neighborhood government in many places. And in other places like the European Union, you have transnational government. So you have people, uh, you have decisions being made uh, beyond the nation state. So we have to, to be careful when we say the government because we, we need to really, okay, what do we mean? So governance are the relationships between civil society, the public sector, and the private sector uh, that happen in a kind of um, um, that happen in uh, in a, 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 a with formal institutions. I'm going to explain that a little bit further. But we we have these relationships. Uh, and they are uh, guided by formal agreements like contracts and laws, regulations, zoning plans, master plans. All these things, they, they, they kind of uh, shape 
the relationships between civil society, public sector, and the private sector. But um, we also have um, uh, we have uh, informal uh, institutions, and I'm going to explain what what that is uh, in a few minutes. What we see in the picture is that civil society, public, uh, the public sector, and the private sector, they are always like pushing and. Abi, Dennis. Oh, uh, if you could please uh, mute. <laughs> there is somebody with their. Um... Hugo, if you can help me muting uh, people who forgot to mute themselves. So, I was saying. Um, um, these sectors of society, they're always putting pressure on one another. They're making demands, they're asking for things, or they're telling people not to do things. The public sector is saying, wow, you need to follow the, the law. Civil society is saying, well, I need my rights. The private sector is saying, oh, I need less taxes. I, I need, uh, you know, more incentives. And they're by in doing this, they're putting pressure on one another and keeping each other in check. They kind of control it, each other. And in, in, a, in an ideal world, in an ideal country, these things should be a little bit in, in, in equilibrium. Um, and this, uh, so in an ideal world, these things should be a little bit in equilibrium and we shouldn't have... Uh, private sector that is too strong or a public sector that is too strong. But we know that in reality, in different countries, these things are uh, more or less powerful. In China, uh, so if I have Chinese friends here, you, uh, you will help me. The public sector is the most powerful, right? Um, in Brazil, um, the private sector is very powerful and they will tell how the city should um, evolve. Uh, in Egypt, that's a little bit mixed, but uh, the army is very important. So the army, I would say, is part of the public sector, right? Um, in the Netherlands, civil society is very, very powerful. So they can stop projects, they can um, change the uh, regulations and so forth. Depending on the country where you are, one of these is more powerful or, or not. We have two other uh, uh, groups of stakeholders, so to speak, that are uh, silent. One is the planet. So the planet doesn't talk to us with words. It talks to us in other ways, right? With the climate and so on, but it doesn't talk to us with words. And another silent stakeholder are future generations because they are not here now. So we need to imagine what they need. As I said, all this, these relationships happen within this framework of the rule of law. So of, of regulations, laws, plans, and things that are written. Um, and the rule of law is something we are going to discuss a little bit further, but uh, it's very different in different countries. Some countries don't have the rule of law very strong. Uh, but others do have a, a rule of law very strong. So what is the rule of law? The rule of law means that um, the law is above everybody. So uh, no one is above the law in the rule of law. So in, in thesis, you could, you could sue your government and you could say, well, 
you know, you didn't provide good health care to me, so I'm going to sue you and I'm going to get, uh, and uh, you're going to, to lose in court. It means that you can sue your government, basically, and that nobody is above the law. We know that that's not the case in many places, right? Uh, apart from that, as I said before, there are what we call informal institutions. Uh, informal institutions are ways of doing things and cultural attitudes that are not written. So they are not formalized. They are not part of the law. They're just a way that people do things because they do things like that in that country. And we can't, uh, we can't formalize them because then they would become laws, right? But they are not. They're just uh, ways of doing things. And I know it's a strange, I know it's a strange uh, idea, like how can an institution be informal? But actually, we have lots and lots and lots of informal institutions, ways of doing things that are there that everybody follows, but uh, they're not written. Let's go forward. Let's have a look at what formal institutions are. Property rights, contracts, development rights, um, building codes, quality and standard of buildings, for example, streets and plot cadastres, and so on. So all these things are part of formal institutions that help us govern the city. For example, uh, we have contracts between private sector and the public sector and civil society. Uh, the private sector uh, is bound to follow development rights, for example, or building codes and so on. So we have these relationships being guided by these formal institutions. And as I said, I, I wanted to discuss a little bit the rule of law, because in every country, that's a little bit different, right? And in some countries, there are people who are uh, above the law and who never get sued for anything, right? Uh, we know that. But um, in principle, there should, the law should be for everyone. Um, OK, so far, so good, guys. Um, are you following what, what governance is? Yes, I see nodding faces. Very good. But what if I told you that um, there is not one, one uh, form of governance? There are several forms of governance. One of them is hierarchic governance, which is those organigrams I, I showed in the beginning. They are very hierarchical, right? You have a boss. And then you have all the people below that follow that boss. So that's a top-down uh, kind of governance. And that happens in many places. That's how things work in many places. There is something else called network governance, which is a style of government and of, of the affairs of the city that is a little bit more networked. And there is not so much hierarchy, but different uh, sources of power and different sources of decision-making that are kind of crisscrossing each other. And we have something called, in capitalism, by the way, we have something called market governance, which is how the market works. The market has its own laws, so to speak, right? Uh, we know that there is the law of demand and, and uh, other laws that uh, govern the market. Well, hierarchic governance is based on rules, 
and it's common uh, in Germany and Eastern Europe and in most countries around the Mediterranean and in Africa. That's the kind of governance that is more uh, common in these places. Networked governance is based on partnerships between all these uh, people in society. It's common here in, in Northern Europe. It's a little bit more common in Europe. And the market governance is also something that uh, we all have in our countries. It's very common in the UK and Ireland and so on. Hierarchic government governance is about giving information. Network government governance is about dialogue. And market governance is about marketing campaigns. Dependency, independency, and interdependency. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but my students at Tilde Delft, they think that hierarchic governance is bad, market governance is bad, but we need to put up with it, and network governance is good. So net, network governance, governance means that you know, decisions are taken by uh, different uh, groups of people. But in reality, that's not so simple. We need the three of them happening at the same time for things to, 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 to work. Now that we are having uh, a lot of, uh, of, um, of problems with the climate, with having climate change and climate emergency, maybe we need a little bit of hierarchic governance because we need leadership and we need you know, some top-down top um, decision-making. So what my students uh, think is that everything that is top-down is bad and everything that's bottom-up is good. But what I'm trying to tell you is that that's not that simple. Uh, we need a little bit of top-down and we need bottom-up. What happens is that in most of our countries here present, we don't, um, we don't have a lot of bottom-ups. So people think, oh, we need bottom-up, we need bottom-up, and they're right but we also need a little bit of top-down. Uh, somebody is saying, uh, like with the pandemic, indeed, with the pandemic, uh, it became clear that we need clear, uh, clear leadership and you know, people, telling, people telling other people what to do, wear masks, get a, get a vaccine, and so on. What this guy is saying, Milleman, is that um, um, you need the three types to, to have a good society. Well, I'm not going to uh, explain these slides because I'm going to uh, send you this presentation. Well, this presentation will be uh, in the uh, folder to which everyone has access, so you can see the differences. Let's have a look at what I mean by uh, governance of a small part of London. So London is a very big city, right? It's enormous, but it, uh, the city of London is actually a little neighborhood a little borough of, of London that is 1.2 uh, square miles um, um, in extension. So it's very small. This is where London started. This is where the, the, the Romans had, um, you know, the Romans, they had a city called Londinium, which was the ancestor of London. And this is where Londinium was actually. So this is very historical core of London. And this is a very important part of London because a lot of uh, bank he uh, headquarters are there. Uh, so it's incredibly important, this small part of the city. Let's see how it's governed. 
they have wards. So that small part of London is uh, subdivided in wards who elect uh, elects the members of the Court of Commons that uh, will govern the city. Uh, they have the City of London Corporation, which is the whole borough. So the whole, the whole little thing is governed by this corporation. This corporation is part of the Greater London Authority, which is the big London, right? The Greater London Authority is part of the English regions. The English regions are part of England. The part, uh, England is part of the United Kingdom. And this slide is old, so you will forgive me. This is when the United Kingdom was part of the European Union. <laughs> yes, I know, right? Um, what I want to explain with this slide is that all these levels of government make decisions that impact the, uh, the city of London. That small part of London is impacted by all these um, uh, scales of decision-making and by lots and lots of, of, um, of stakeholders. So um, England is a wonderful democracy. Uh, it's really, 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 uh, you know, one of the first democracies we had in the world. And they, had, uh, they have a lot of uh, old customs and things that they, that they do for many, many centuries already. But um, the decision-making in this super small part of London is composed by a court of aldermen, then a lord mayor and two sheriffs, and the court of commons that we saw um, in the last slide. And uh, the court of commons uh, has 121 committees in 2012 and 72 outside bodies. So when I say that decision-making is networked, that's what I mean. A lot of people are taking decisions for this uh, for this part of London, right? I'm not going to uh, go too much into it because it's really super interesting, but super complicated. Um, it's up to you to imagine how your city is governed, um, by which authorities, by which parts of the government, but also how um, the uh, private sector and the private and uh, and the public sector interact in uh, so how the private sector the public sector and civil society society interact um, when uh, they are governing uh, the city but how to use governance in your project um, uh, if you are doing project um, you if if you can um, um, uh, if you are designing something or thinking about uh, something for the city, you have to answer the question, who does what when? This is the key question that you need to know who are the actors and stakeholders of the project and what are they going to do in your project? And as you know, um, the government is only part of those actors. You have to think of the of the. Um, of the, of the businesses, and you have to think of civil society. Very, very much. Civil society is super important. Um, who supports and who opposes your project? That's another very important uh, thing you need to you need to, to 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 decide. Well, I think everybody knows what analysis. So the strength, how to measure the strengths, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of a project. 
And you know that the SWOT analysis is divided into positive and negative aspects, but also into internal problems or internal challenges, strengths and weaknesses of the project that are internal and are happening now. And you can also think of the uh, opportunities and threats as external to the project or in the future, right? I hope everybody knows this uh, exercise a little bit. Uh, it's very, very useful, and it's useful to make these distinctions, things that are internal to your project and things that are external to your project and can happen in the future, for example. So just to make sure you understand, opportunities and threats are external to the project. They influence the project, but they are not inside the project, and they can also happen in the future, right? But another thing that is super important for us to know, and I have uh, realized that not a lot of people use this, is the power interest matrix of, uh, in which we can try to map the stakeholders in our projects and try to understand their role. So who does what when, based on this understanding of how much power they have and how much interest they have in the project. And in order to do that, you can divide the matrix in four quadrant, quadrants, and you then start to, to um, classify your stakeholders. If they have little power and little interest, well, maybe you don't have to, to waste a lot of time with them. They don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of interest. So, well, let's just monitor them and see what they, what they do. But if they have lots of power and little interest, maybe you have to engage and attract them. If they have um, a lot of power and a lot of interest, well, they are key. They're the key actors of your, of your project. So you have to manage them closely, cater for their needs, and so on. Uh, however, citizens are generally in the uh, quadrant in the, on, the, on the left, on the right, sorry. They have little power, but they do have a lot of interest. What do we do with them? We empower them. So um, civil society in most countries here represented is not very active or is not very powerful and is generally silenced. I'm talking about associations of citizens, right? And in general, they have a lot of interest in projects, but they have very little power. And the role of good planners and designers and architects is to find ways to empower uh, those stakeholders. Okay, I want to, I want to um, finish this with uh, just a little um, reminder that when we are talking about planner planning and design and so on, we need to understand that uh, uh, different countries have very, very different planning systems and planning mentalities and planning, um, planning ways, right? Um, so we have basically four types. One type is based on policy. So we have performance criteria and decision rules, and everything is kind of codified in master plans, for example, but these master plans, they're not physical. They're more like rules and regulations. We have uh, another style that is more based on strategies, strategies to coordinate spatial impacts of public policy. 
incentive, we have another type that is incentive by, by investment in hard and soft infrastructure. This is very common in Africa, but also in China. China had a lot of economic investment um, planning, right? Um, and finally, we have a very, very common way of doing planning that is based on zoning and urban design, uh, generally uh, related to urbanism. And this is really about uh, zoning plans and uh, urban design exercises in the city. And there are lots of informal institutions also operating. So let's have a look at what informal institutions are, and then I will finish my lecture. The unwritten rules of the game informal ways of doing things, ingrained worldviews, cultural attitudes that determine how we relate with each other, with the state, with the law, and with the market. I forgot to write the market here. Um, for example, in the Netherlands, we have what we call the Polder model. What's the Polder model? So this is the Netherlands, right? It's a very, this country laying very low. It's called the lowlands. And in order to inhabit here, you have to dig Polders. What is a polder? It's a piece of land that you, you, create, you create by digging a canal uh, around it, and then the, the, water table, uh, the water table goes down, and you have, uh, you have land. But in order to do that, you have to have a lot of agreement between people, because you cannot have a polder on its own. It only works if you have a system of polders. Otherwise, it doesn't work at all because the water has to go somewhere, right? And in order for your polder to work, it needs to be connected to the other polder. So that's very interesting because that created this societal model that we call polder model. It's a societal model based on consensus seeking and shared visions for a desirable future born from the urgency to organize life in this land. If you don't have those things, it's very difficult to live here because you need to agree with your neighbor. Of course, people don't do that anymore. Uh, we are not digging so many polders anymore, but this, the kind of uh, culture stayed. So in the Netherlands, we have collective action, consensus seeking, and a lot of faith in the institutions and in the government. And I know this sounds... Uh, <laughs> I know this sounds like uh, shocking to you because who, who has faith in the government, right? But actually, when you pay taxes and the taxes are well used and you have a, a good country, then the faith in the government and institutions goes up. So that's the case in the north of Europe. People have a lot of faith in, in the government, but also in institutions, right? Um, okay. We have other kinds of uh, informal institutions that are in other countries that are sometimes positive and sometimes negative. Are there any Italians here? It's more common uh, in the south of Italy, and it implies uh, extreme form of loyalty and solidarity in the face of authority. So it's a little bit like, um, I don't like authority, but I will protect my clan. So omerta is something that the mafia uses a lot. It's not a written rule, right? It's not a law. It's just a way that people do things. Um, so Italians, tell me if I'm wrong. It's uh, based on blind loyalty to the family or the clan, a distrust of state authority. And it's also kind of a you know, toxic masculinity affirmation. So you have to be a macho to be part of of this kind of institution. Um, 
Minga is something that they have in Ecuador, and it is about a community action to tackle problems of the community. Um, <clears throat> it's based on collective local action, mutual trust, goodwill, and sharing. So that's very nice institution, isn't it? But it's not, it's not codified. There is no law. People just do it, right? Um, another uh, informal institution is the Jeitinho from Brazil. And Jeitinho is, uh, it means the little way of doing things. And it means finding a way to accomplish something by circumventing or bending the rules or social conventions. So you find a way to do it uh, informally. Uh, it um, means low regard for formal rules, subservience to authority, pragmatic opportunism, improvisation in face of lack of resources. So these uh, informal institutions, they also influence how cities work. Um, you may think, and I'm sure you all learned, you know, okay, we have a master plan and these are the, the planning rules and this is how things happen. But is it how things happen really in reality or, or are we kind of... Um... So... Um, for example, in Africa, we have lots of traditional ways of land uh, tenure and ownership that is, are not um, written laws. Someone from Africa, uh, from, and I know, by the way, I hate when people say Africa as if it is like it's a lot of countries that are very different from each other. But there are some countries in Africa that have um, traditional ways of land tenure. Can anyone explain to me? I can give an example from my tribe. Yes. So, like, is what would happen is, yeah, Edgar from uh, in Tanzania, I'm from um, Kagera. My yes. my friends are originally from Kagera. So, what would happen is, the father, I don't know how long, how far back this went, but the father of the, let's say, a father of a household would have a land, and then once the the a son, for example, uh, marries or reaches a certain age, you you divide the land and you you plant a certain tree. Yeah, and so that tree that you plant, if if you go anywhere in in that village and you see that tree, it shows that this is the border of this person's plot. So they, that's the subdivision. There is no government involved. There is no. Uh huh. It's completely within the cultural system. So it's yes. it's something that is completely recognized by the people, even though it might not be listed as planned or zoned out area. But the mm -hmm. people who live there. All know like this is the border. This is this person's land starts from here and ends there, because of the yeah. system that. It That's very nice, very nice example. So what happened with colonization? Colonization was like this. Uh, you know, it comes and it says, "Oh, this is not good enough. This is uh, primitive. I don't like it. Let's have a British um, planning system here in this country, right?" And what happens is that this, this doesn't match with the culture and. I think the way that uh, Edgar just explained is a much more humane way of, uh, of um, demarcating the land than we have. Um, we should pay attention to the traditional ways that people um, used and try to understand why they use it like this and try to understand, okay, well, maybe we should try to adapt the planning system to these ways or bring some elements of traditional planning to to modern planning. The idea that um, um, European planning is the best and we should implement it 
uh, everywhere like like that is wrong. And I think my invitation to you is to think, okay, what planning uh, ways are more um, connected to to the place where I live and to the customs and informal institutions of my country? And maybe a lot of um, a lot of um, of ideas from Western planning are okay. They're kind of good. Let's follow them, but not all of them. And uh, it's important to be really critical and to try to bring things to your own reality. This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez. Music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of Design for Values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education, outreach and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of Design for Values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, Don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time.